0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest with us today. We have, I'm sure most of you recognize, the incredible Margaret Toscano. How are you today, Margaret?
1: I'm doing just great. Thank you for having me
0: on again. Oh, we are very excited to have this conversation with you. This is going to be amazing. Landon, why don't you just uh, briefly read her bio in case there are uh, anybody out there in the known world who doesn't know who Margaret is.
2: <laughs> okay, absolutely. Uh, Margaret uh, Toscano has been speaking, writing, and publishing about Mormon feminism since 1984. She is now working on a book about the Mormon Heavenly Mother. She and is an Associate Professor of Classics and Comparative Studies at the University of Utah. Where she teaches classes about mythology, classical civilization, religious studies, hell, immortality, and all levels of the ancient Greek and Latin languages. She is the co editor of the book Hell and Its Afterlife Historical and Contemporary <laughs> Perspectives. She also works on the reception of classical culture and popular media and is currently working on an article about Hades and Persephone. So, wow. Very- yeah, so
1: I'm very much a comparative scholar. I do all kinds of topics, but mostly dealing with, yeah, religion, myth, gender. So very interested in anything like that. By the way, whenever I teach my hell class, students just love it. They love signing up for hell, right?
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> Mom, Dad, I'm going to hell, going and you're paying
2: hell. for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it hell. It's the hell they told me it was. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No,
0: I just, I love this. And and your background is so interesting, and you're so knowledgeable. We had the opportunity um, as Mormonish to go on the Backyard Professor, along with Margaret, to talk about the Gospel Topics essay. Let's think, I think it's called the Joseph Smith's Teachings on the Temple, Women, and Priesthood not necessarily in that in order. But boy, that was an interesting conversation. And we still need to put that out as Mormonish. And we will. You can catch that on BYP's channel too. But but we couldn't think of anybody better to come on and discuss this topic with than Margaret. And um, this all occurred a week or so ago. Um, Landon and I were out of town. So we weren't able to podcast about it. And we watched everybody's podcast. Um, that We're calling it the Great LDS Women's Standoff. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with this scenario that was was brought to light. The first I saw of it, and I think most of us was um, Peggy Fletcher Stack in the Salt Lake Tribune, put a big article out that said, you know, did you know that women, LDS women in the Bay Area for a decade or so have been sitting on the stand, you know, as leadership, like you'd see your bishop and your counselors there, you know, didn't seem very obtrusive. They're just on the stand. And then suddenly an area rep comes in and says, that's not going to stand. <laughs> We're not going to do that anymore. And as I hear it um, from contacts there, instead, of you know reading a letter or giving a letter of instruction they pretty much just said tell the women that they can't sit on the stand anymore and when bishop said well is there a letter is there something formal i can read they said well if you feel that that's needed you can write it yourself so very you know no paper trail you know just get them down off the stand we're not really going to try to make this official but um of course a lot of people had a lot of very strong opinions about this. In fact, if you go to the next slide, I think we have some pictures of, you know, all kinds of media blitz. That's what we're calling it. Everywhere we looked. And we, Landon and I in Florida, were kind of frustrated. We're like, oh my gosh, everyone's podcasting about this. It's going on everywhere. And we of course uh, could not at the time, but we we got a hold of Margaret right away and said, "Would you like to come on when we get back and let's um, let's talk about this?" Because I think there's a larger, there are larger issues. There's a larger picture, and we are really interested to hear your thoughts on this, Margaret. Uh, did you hear about it right when it first happened, or it...
1: actually, I didn't hear about it right when it first happened because I, I get so busy with my work that I don't <laughs> follow everything on the you not know, a the church watch media. Right, except for my husband, who's now retired. (laughs) He's the one who will tell me, oh, yeah, did you hear this was happening? And then you guys contacted me. And I thought at first I thought I listened to the great interview um, that RFM did with Carolyn Pearson, Mm -hmm. who lives in the Bay Area, and with Lila and Martine. And I thought they did a really nice interview about it. But as I was thinking about it, you guys will do I want to come on? I thought, well, I do think I have something to add. That will maybe put it in a larger context that I think um, really shows what some of the underlying issues are here. So thank you for inviting me. This yes. is fun.
0: Yep. I think yeah. it's going to be good. Let's, I can't remember our order of our next slides. Oh my goodness. we have been making so many slides today. What do we have up next? If there's anything we want to cover before we dive right in, I guess I should say that, um, the women in the area, as we understand from different articles and people that have connections, you know, they definitely were very dismayed and disheartened by this, um, a group organized, you can find them on Instagram. And they're called Women on the Stand, I believe. And they actually put together an open letter um, to the General Relief Society president and the General Young Women's president, where they just kind of went through in detail their disappointment in what had happened. I don't know if do you think we should read the letter, Landon, or do you think we can just kind of paraphrase, you know, basically saying, you know, it's an example to our daughters and our sons to sit there in the audience and see women and men leading together, you know. And so just expressing disappointment, and there's an opportunity to sign a petition. Um, If you go to the next slide, it looks like so far, gosh, 844 people have so far signed it publicly and privately, and um, they're encouraging everybody to read the open letter and then to sign. So again, you can go to Women on the Stand if you'd like to find out more about what they're doing, but definitely a situation where they felt like they had to take action, right? (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if this is limited to just women that can sign it or if men can sign mm-hmm. as well. Um, uh, but it, uh, it definitely, Oh, I
1: think men should sign it. Yes. I think it's
2: really important for men to sign as well. Yeah, I'm, i I'm, I'm just going to go in and sign this myself. It's <laughs> it's important that I think, you know, for, for everyone who does sign this, you know, that there's many who are saying, is this going to get me in trouble with my stake yeah. president if I sign this and, and that, uh, support it, but aren't aren't willing to sign it. So for those of us, especially in the in the post Mormon community, who still might have records in the church or whatever, that you can go in and sign this and say, "Hey, I su- I support this." There needs to be uh, a place for for the women uh, in the church
1: and-, and the men. I think again, I think it's so important for leaders to know that these issues that do uh, relate to women, that men also care about them, and that men. You know, just because you're a male priesthood holder doesn't mean you agree with what the church is doing.
2: Absolutely.
0: absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I should
1: also mention, it's funny because I would never sign this because as soon as my name is on it, they go, oh, that negates the whole thing, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's Margaret
1: <laughs> Toscano that's right some,
0: low profile <laughs> some people have to have a low profile that's right so while you while you may not sign it we still are extremely interested just to hear your thoughts and I, I know that you if anyone can put it in a much larger context some people that are younger you know probably don't even understand you know the history or just like the bigger picture and i think that's where your your um information is really invaluable
1: yeah, in fact, why do not you go to, did you have the next slide, Rebecca, which yeah. was the one of the ordained, uh, no, that's the open yeah, one letter more, again. One more. Okay, oh, here's Here the. Yes. Um,
0: Here we go. So
1: this is a photo that I believe was taken in 12, 2013. So I can't believe it's 10 years ago now Um, <laughs> that this is a group that were part of the ordained women. And I should tell you that even when this group was started, they debated about whether or not I could be a visible figure because it was the idea, they were trying to portray the idea. And if you want to look on the Ordained Women's site, which was started up in 2013, and these were women and men who were advocating for ordaining women, trying to do it in a respectful manner and saying, We, most of us, are active LDS members, but because of our own personal experiences and our reading, we believe that women should be ordained, and then of course we did two activities: one at um, in the April conference, 2013, and then one in um, in um, the the October conference where we marched. <laughs> we maybe I shouldn't say march because yeah. it sounds too <laughs> um, too <clears throat> confrontative, but we were trying to be nice, nice Mormon women, right? I think most of us even wore dresses. And um, so we went from like that little park, uh, which is uh, east of the tabernacle and the temple. And this is of course, before all the construction. And we kind of respectfully marched over to the tabernacle asking for admittance to the priesthood session. And of course we were denied. And there was national, international coverage there, so it went really viral. (laughs) And, of course, you have Kate Kelly on the left. A year later, Kate was excommunicated. The movement has really sort of gone underground. It lost a lot of, um, you know, momentum after Kate's excommunication. Um, And I think one of the sad things, and I've seen this, again, in the history of Mormon feminism, that you'll have a real active feminist activism and kind of outspokenness. And then you'll have certain people that are excommunicated way back in the seventies. It was Sonia Johnson yes. with the ERA movement and the church's opposition to that in the nineties. It was me and other women, high profile women in the September six and so forth that were ex feminists that were outspoken. That was one of the target groups for the September 6th purge. And then in 2013, if you think about it, the 70s, okay, then Sonia Johnson is exed and you kind of have Mormon feminism going underground. Then in the late 80s, when in fact, I, along with some others, started a group called um, the, uh, we were, uh, suddenly my mind will go blank, but it was the um, I'll think of it in a second. But anyway, we started a a group. We had Counterpoint Conference and we had um, other things where we were advocating for women to have more voice and to talk about gender issues. And then you had the September 6th purge, my excommunication, other people excommunicated. And then it kind of goes underground again. And then in the early 2000s culminating in the ordained women in 2013, Mormon feminism kind of reemerges. It was the Mormon Women's Forum. That was the oh. name I was trying to think of. I'm old. Give me a minute. <laughs> it will come Oh, back I get to it. You, right? <laughs> Mormon, the Mormon Women's Forum was started in 1988. And the whole idea was that there'd been a lot of feminist groups before that, but they were mostly private retreat groups. Mm. You know, you did have like the exponent two, but there was not like a public forum for discussing issues, so we started in 1988. Um, um, Kelly Frame and um, and also uh, Karen Christ, and I, w- the three of us, kind of were the initial ones that started it and have a public forum for discussing. And then eventually um, that sort of faded along with you know excommunications and so forth. And then again, the ordained women movement starts 2013, Kate is excommunicated in 2014. And I really think that in the last 10 years, Mormon feminism has gone underground again. Yeah. Things are still happening online, but it's not the sort of really visual activism that we had. So it's really interesting that if you look at this group of us in that picture, I was the only I was excommunicated already by that time, of course. So they debated should we let Margaret participate? Because maybe it'll seem too radical then if she's right. there. And but I did. And then basically now I don't think any of those women are in the church still. I don't know. I haven't talked to Hannah or some of the others, but I mean that's kind of the, the movement that we see. Um so I think it's interesting though, with this, I, I love the idea of the women were asked to stand down, and now we have another standoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that we can play on on no on those terms but um margaret do you yeah think, so i think it's do you think the go movement ahead. Went,
2: do you think the movement went underground because the church gave some leeway i mean in one sense they they uh stopped having priesthood session totally
0: yeah um, well no they put I mean, it, they it they put, put it online for history. a while yeah
2: yeah, and then they've they've uh, put the you know the young women now uh, they've lowered the the missionary age and called young women mm-hmm. on missions, and then you've got uh, you know these women that were allowed to be on the stand. Was there was there some headway being made, or do you think it was the excommunications just scared everybody off?
1: So I want to to me the question you've asked Landon is kind of a central question that I see as pertinent to both the sort of waves of Mormon feminism, as well as this current issue. Um, so one of the patterns that we see, and maybe I'll state my kind of strong opinion, first of all, mm-hmm. I think that the central issue in all of this is the fact that women do, are not ordained to priesthood. Mm-hmm. And this has always been controversial among Mormon feminists. Okay, But my kind of central thesis is that because women are not part of the priesthood structure, no matter what little changes you make to try to appear that things to make it appear that things are more equal. The bottom line is that women are second class citizens. They are not equal. So, and, and there's been so much discussion o- about this over the years that priesthood the priesthood structure and of course remember back when we had our other discussion about my article uh, which was a response and a critique to the church essay about Joseph Smith and priesthood and women that in that article I bring up the fact that there have been since in 2019 they've made in that sort of period of 2019 notice that that's 5 years after the kate kelly excommunication but in 2019 or you know somewhere around that i'm not sure it's exact on the dates they made several changes they did quite a bit of changes in the temple to kind of create more of equal mm-hmm. language mm-hmm. they allowed women to be and actually children too like you talked about handing out the towels at the baptismal font they let women and chil- women and children be witnesses and they also said, we're going to include women more. There was a lot of complaints about young women having to confess sins to male priesthood leaders. So they'll say, we're going to have more input of women leaders in regard to young women. And also they have said, well, we're going to include women on some of in some of the priesthood council meetings. So you have those kind of four areas where in that period, They seem to be saying we want more equality, but my critique is that I'm glad to see all of those changes, but bottom line, as long as you have a male hierarchical priesthood structure that is in charge of the church, women are second-class citizens. There is really not an equality. And I think that's a really important point to keep in mind here. They give the language of equality, but the structure argues against that. And so you could say, well, I mean, I I think for an outsider, they might think, you know, what's the big deal whether women are on the stand or not, right? But it's indicative of this larger question. And just a couple more things, and then I want to hear your responses. It's really interesting. The first paper... I ever gave on Mormon feminism was in 1984. I gave a paper about, it was called The Missing Rib, and it was about, the missing rib was women are not part of, I was using almost this image of like the ribs of a building, the the like the tabernacle, if you have the ribs, that as long as you don't have women in the structure, then my argument was that you really don't have what I would call the fullness of the restoration. Anyway, that paper, which was kind of sensational when I gave it, because I said, Mormonism has more theological and historical justification for ordaining women than really any other Christian religion. It has more justification. And yet we've lagged behind all these other churches in what we've done. And then I, I wrote a lot more papers about that, which is really what led to my excommunication. But very early, when I gave that paper, there was all these arguments among Mormon feminists where they said, we they sort of divided us into the good girls and the bad girls. <laughs> I was one of the bad girls. So <laughs> it was the idea, no, we can't ask for priesthood. And a lot of women said, well, I don't even want priesthood. Yeah. No, we can't ask for a priesthood. Let's work for what they call the sort of baby steps. We're going to work for equality. You know, don't go to the top and ask for priesthood. Let's do other things like women praying in sacrament meeting or in general conference. That was a big deal. Or, um, you know, being able to sit on the stand or, you know, when you give a, a, a talk, um, wearing pants to church, <laughs> you know, all of these things were like the baby steps. And the, I mean, you even have someone like uh, Nyla McBain. I don't know if you know who she is, but she wrote a book about women in the church and she's arguing Oh, you can do all these really important things on a local structure. So this example of the standoff, stand down and stand off is an example of that. Well, look, women can do these things. Their voices are heard on a on a local level. So she's saying where people should work is on the local level. Don't ask for the big structural changes. Mm. Well, of course, ordained women was asking for a big structural change. It was put down, you know, even stronger. But I see, you know, then. Interestingly, the church in 2019 starts trying to make these concessions to women. And it seems like a lot of people are arguing, look, the church is getting better. There is more equality for women now. But then we have this recent thing which shows. Yeah. No. And I would say the reason they don't want women standing, sitting on the stand is it appears that they have church authority, which connects it to priesthood. Yep and it's symbolically they're not going to accept that so anyway i've sort of given my long interpretation (laughs) but i hope that that can lead to us talking about this but really again i see the bottom line is as long as women are not ordained to priesthood they are never they're always second class citizens no matter how much kind of little things you give them okay you can pray in, in general conference you can um, you can sit on the stand in general Conference <laughs> you you know you can be witness witnesses you can do these other right. things, but really you are not equal with the man. I mean and and they'll say, oh but you're just as important. well structurally you're not yeah. And Separate but equal. So I don't know. Let's talk about <laughs> all of that. Stuff I just no, said. no, I
0: think e- exactly what, what you said. Yeah. No, the infrastructure and the idea is kind of like window dressing or frosting. That's how I look at it, because there's nowhere in the entire church that any woman can make a decision that inevitably could not be overridden by, I guess, an 11 year old boy with the priesthood. Right. I mean, if you really Absolutely. get down to it. And I don't know if you saw recently, like you said, you don't watch it as much as as your husband Paul does, but uh, they put out an update in the handbook that gave the structure of what kind of um, leadership and numbers it needs to form a new ward or a new branch or a new group. And they had very specific number of priesthood holders, number of youth. Women were never listed anywhere on that list. It never said you're going to have to have at least twenty good women that can make funeral potatoes. They never said anything like that. It's all priesthood. It's all youth. It's all leadership callings, you know. And once you have, once you've achieved that number of men, I think, I think they lowered it. The big news about it was that it's so low, you know, like you can really have these wards with only, I think, twenty male leadership roles that can function everywhere. I was going to say, people, yeah, how many yeah. men?
1: How many good men do we have to have yeah. to have a Award right or yeah, that's or that's
0: basically what this is. And again, you get kind of distracted by all these other things. Oh, look at women in leadership on missions; they're able to do this or they can do that. But then these things happen off the stand. Or look, here's what it takes to make a ward. No mention of any female presence whatsoever. Well, and, and it made and- me realize you could have a thousand women in a, in a geographical area for a award. But until you have one, I don't know, pimply-faced 17-year-old boy with the Melchizedek priesthood, you don't have a ward. You can't form one. And that's kind of the dark side that people don't allow themselves, I think, to see.
1: No. And again, it's I, I think the little changes they've made are good, mm-hmm. but they're not enough. Yeah. They really, and I think your example is so good, Rebecca, because they have to have the male priesthood leadership. You could have a thousand women, but if yep. we can't find 20 good men right or even 20 <laughs> mediocre men, right? We can't we can't really form the structure of a ward. Um, and that's really crucial because, you know, and I argue this in that ar- the article we talked about last time that that you that this overall structure of the church, as you said, women, men make the decisions, they create doctrine they manage the finances and that everything that women do has to go through priesthood approval. You know, even though, again, they've sort of loosened up and it's not as bad as when I was young, but it's still very much, you know, the structure of the priesthood. And if you, even if you look at the, you know, the visuals for general conference, yeah, maybe now the women are a little bit more visible, but if you count the numbers Uh, of the references (laughs) of the men as opposed to the women it and the men are on the it's a pyramid structure right you have the president prophet and the first and the counselors and the council of the 12 and the 70s and all of the sml leadership i mean it is a pyramid hierarchical and the men are at the top they're the ones I mean, even the fact that we do not have an example of a female prophet who is seen as having the spiritual authority and power, I mean, that's important. And I've argued this even with like the heavenly mother too, that in a way, she's in the same position that you can say, oh, heavenly father, we have heavenly parents Notice Mm -hmm. that you talk about heavenly parents more than heavenly father and heavenly mother. We don't name her, right? Oh, and she's too sacred to talk about, but the same thing. She is kind of on the sideline. It's sort of like the Godhead is looked as like the first presidency, father, son, and Holy ghost, Mm -hmm. a very male Holy ghost. They're the ones that preside. Yeah. She's kind of there, (laughs) but It's the same kind of structure, right? And so you see it modeled in the heavens as well as on earth, if you're talking Mormon theology. So, Landon, we should give you a chance to say something.
2: (laughs) I I was just going to say it was interesting to to hear you say that, because in in general conference, we hear all of the men are always deferring to President Nelson. And we quote from President Nelson. The women all defer to President Nelson and quote to President Nelson. Mm-hmm. When does anyone defer to a woman in the church and mm-hmm. say, "Here's a woman who's doing, you know, who does wonderful He's- things or sets a good example for us to look to"? There's that never happens. We never point to a good woman. We only point to President Nelson or whoever the the prophet. Oh, is. oh the
1: very fact of how often it's point we point to President Nelson is very disturbing. Because again, you have this very hierarchical structure. You know, the ultimate authority is this man, alpha male.
2: We're pointing to the alpha. Yeah, yeah, the
1: alpha male. That's exactly what it is. And I think it's really interesting. It's been a long time since I went to a church meeting, right? But I remember way back the last time I went to Relief Society, the manual had the lessons all had a a male general authority as sort of the center of the lesson. And his picture in the manual, sort of like, you know, we women, we can't like talk about our own things or define our own, you know, what we're concerned with. We have to have a talk by a male general authority that's going to be the outline for us for what we're going to talk about. I was so disturbed by that. And I don't know if they still do that, Rebecca, if you have more of a connection. You no, know, I have a story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us your story.
0: <laughs> no, this this reminds me of that exactly. One of the very last times I ever went to Relief Society, um, and I I must have been there by accident. I swear, I must have been visiting a <laughs> relative or something. It couldn't have been, you know, it was not my own accidental but visit. Seriously, I think it was, you know, you had to go, like one of your relatives said, well, you're coming in, aren't you, Rebecca? And you're like, okay. But it was, they had us all in a big circle, which was was different from what I was used to. And there was a man, someone on the high council sitting there. And the release study president said, Elder brother so and so is here because we're going to have a conversation today about, you know, women in the church and women's issues. And he is going to help us guide this. I know I'm not making this up, <laughs> guide this discussion. It was absolutely ridiculous. And he looked just as uncomfortable as everyone else. And he's like, Well, sisters, let you know, what do you find to be an issue today? I just thought, Oh my God, seriously, optically, you just can't even make this stuff up. It's just crazy. And I think, I think about History, how can't make no, it up. you can't make it up. And I think about recently, you see these mothers, younger mothers than when we were young mothers who are really looking for female role models in the church for their daughters. It's extremely important. Um, If we would have read that letter back there, that was part of it. I want my daughter and my son to see women, you know, so that my sons grow up understanding, you know, women are incredible. And so I see the church trying to, again, I hate to use the word lip service, but try to recreate the few female (laughs) main characters that that there are into these roles. But they rarely, if ever, give them any kind of power. For example, Emma, right? First of all, Emma was vilified for decades. When I was young, you don't mention Emma. No one knows exactly what happened to her. She's just out there somewhere. Now Emma is part of the world's greatest love story. That's who Emma is. You know, that's who your daughter can emulate. She's part of this amazing love story. And she's so supportive. Well, of a monogamous her marriage, priesthood. right? She yes, with a monogamous, a monogamous love story. And the main thing about her is that she's so supportive of her priesthood holder, right? So, so they try to show these women, but they're always in this role of, you know, wonderful yeah, they, support.
1: Yeah, they've tried to rehabilitate her. Why don't you yeah. go back to that first slide where we can see the, you know, <laughs> if you had an all women thing, right? Is that the next one going back to the Let's very see. beginning again? Uh, um, yeah, the great LDS yeah. women standoff. And maybe we can look <laughs> at that again. And then, you know, not use the PowerPoint, because I'd like, like to see your faces more. But I think that this is an, I, Rebecca, did you use AI to kind of, It was my husband,
0: actually, that he is it's become his new hobby. And he makes our thumbnails. And I said, Hey, I need some kind of AI. And it took us a while to be able to get it to understand what a stand is. There were some weird ones. (laughs) But but yeah, and then he said, Well, let's make it fun. Let's make it Disney. Let's lighten the impact. I'm like, Yeah, okay. But I think it makes it more impactful, because it is they're all kind of like Disney princesses sitting there, aren't they and then ordered off the stand. So well, and
1: it's interesting that you could even argue that in the old days, the Relief Society had more, you know, I'm not talking 19th century. I'm even talking when I was young in the 1970s. If you think about Belle Spafford, I mean, on one level, oh, she's yeah. kind of conservative, but she was a strong lady. And the relief society had more power. After correlation, mm-hmm. their money was taken away, their magazine was taken away. You know, they had they had sort of an independent power. Well, certain people could argue oh, well, we didn't want a separate kind of women's thing and a men's organization. We're going to combine them, which interestingly, after ordaining women, they've now done with general conference, but there's a way in which it also takes away from women's power. So it's sort of, uh, it's telling and disturbing that we kind of then take away the Relief Society power incorporate them more into the general body of the church but they become even more subordinated on one level which is disturbing
2: that was one that was one things i was concerned about on this whole thing is is that you know in general conference they allow the the women uh presidencies up on the stand um then in now they say no you're not allowed to do that at the stake level or at the ward level so you know, it it it's pretty easy to see that general conference is widely televised. It's put out to the world. It's almost as if they're saying to the world, "We welcome women. We put them in our stand. They're part of our leadership." But to their members, they're saying, "Oh no, 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 no! Don't believe that. That's you know, that's what we say to the world. That's not what 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 really happens. You know, you don't have any authority, and you shouldn't be on the stand." Uh, it. it I mean, it doesn't make sense that the very leadership can do exactly what the local leaders were doing. And it's wonderful. But when the local leaders do it, they get slapped down and told they better take care of this problem or they they could lose their positions.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, I think that's a really important point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Landon, that's a very important point. Um, I don't know. I have another direction we could go, but we you know, if you guys have more comments, we could do that, too. I wanted to talk about the rhetoric of equality that they seem to like to really, uh, equality and partnership. Mm-hmm. They like to have that language that women, men and women are partners and that we believe in you know equality of men and women, and yet the structures all argue against that. And I think they've used, so we can talk about the optics being kind of like a propaganda in a way, especially of general conference. But also, I think that there's a lot of rhetoric that's used to really cloud the picture of whether or not we really have a partnership between men and women or uh, or any kind of, you know, is there equality? And that was kind of my bottom line. As long as the priesthood structure organizes everything, there really is never inequality. There's never equality. And So I would like to talk a little bit about that language. I think it's very interesting that after the Ordain Women movement, um, they started really they first of all made some of those changes that, again, I think are great, but they don't go far enough. But also with the language, they'll talk about the uh, partnership. And I think it's interesting if we look at Dallin Oaks way back in 2005, Um, And I think he was responding to certain people like me who are who argue that Joseph Smith gave women priesthood keys and he gave all these talks about no women have never had priesthood keys. Right. And also he started this rhetoric, which then is um, kind of revived after ordained women and up to sort of this, you know, new changes about the temple and so forth, where they will talk about equal partnerships but Dallin Oaks made it very clear, the equal partnership, he'll say, well, in the home, men and women have equal partnership, but in the church, yeah. we have, you know, that the male priesthood kind of runs things. And he softened it a little bit, but it's like that. And then later, even President Nelson said stuff about, well, women have, and then they started this whole rhetoric of women have. The authority and spirit of priesthood, but they don't have keys or offices. And again, I'm sort of saying I'm, and of course, you only have the authority as long as you have a specific church calling. As soon as mm-hmm. your calling is over, you don't have authority anymore. But it seems like they keep using this language to try to cover over the inequality, and yet I think it's I don't I I think that there's a way in which it's a sort of it really does not reflect how things actually function so i don't know if you have any response brandon or rebecca to that if you've had any feel yeah. about that
0: yeah i've noticed that and maybe we should go to our last slide and then let's take the slides off so we can look each other in the face right okay and good i've uh, cuz i know when we talked to margaret before on on byp show we talked a lot about you know early keys and authorities that uh-huh. were there so we can touch That's on right. that but i was going to say you made me think of you know when i was still going to church I would kind of relegate myself over to primary you know and i was usually with the little 7 8 year olds and and you're right the language that i saw about priesthood in the lesson manuals even at that age it was just this little i don't know it it made everybody feel like it was one way. When those of us that are older know it was not that way. It would never be that way. To the point where I taught a lesson once, and I mentioned this on BYPs, where I had a class. There was only one little boy. The rest were little girls, and each one of them thought they were going to get the priesthood. They did not understand yet at age seven that they would not be getting the priesthood like the boys. You know, I we even talked them, about I just, that. I love so that. Oh, Yeah, I I even had them raise my <laughs> hand when one little girl said, "I can't wait to get the priesthood." And someone else said, "Me too." And I said, "How many?" you think you're getting the priest in? They're all like, you know, and the little boy sat there like this. He knew they weren't, but he wasn't going to say anything. And that tells me that parents, (laughs) parents younger than I am, are not telling their little girls about that. They're using this rhetoric that you're describing where it sounds, you know, you're just kind of dancing around it, but they're never going to come right out and say to the little, little, little girls, you're not That's not going to be you. So I don't know. It's a different day. It's a different kind of, you know, kids, different kinds of parents. And this rhetoric is for them to be able to dance around it. But long term, I don't think that's viable. What do you think, Landon?
2: I, I think that uh, they're trying to dance around it, and one of the ways mm-hmm. they've done that is uh, the young women going on missions now, and mm-hmm. uh, that's become almost an expectation yes. for the women. And then it looks like, oh, we've got equal young men and young women out there, therefore we're equal. Yet the the young the the, the young women can't baptize uh, mm-hmm. when they're mm-hmm. out there; um, they can't, you know, do any of the the things that are needed in a ward, as we just talked about. That you have mm-hmm. to have certain qualifications to have a ward. They can't run branches out there. Um And so, yeah, I, they better
1: make, sh- yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: No, I, I'm just saying they're, they're, they're definitely skirting around the issue. Uh, skirting is maybe a bad word. Yeah, no
0: bad word. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, and it just, it just amazes me that, you know, obviously we can look at the three of us and you can say, oh, you know, there's two women there and, and a guy, but you know, as I, as I step back and looking at this, I'm going, cause we Rebecca and I have talked about this. How much the church loses by not allowing the women brain trust Tragedy. be utilized in the church? If you're mm-hmm. a if if you're a uh, Ph.D. in in uh, accounting, you still can't be the ward clerk because you don't have priesthood. <laughs> yeah. You know what if what if instead of our pictures here, we had our, our brain is what showed up on here. You wouldn't be able to tell the men from the women from the brain. Because we all think and we all have something we can add. But we take yeah. this you know, physical body and that determines what you can do when we all know it's the brain trust that's really what's important and what leads and what makes a leader. And yet we take half of those brains and just throw them to the side and say they don't mm-hmm. count because they're in this physical body that looks like this. Um, just absurd.
1: Yeah, yeah and I, I so agree with you, Landon, that the church is losing so much by not utilizing women's talents and so forth. I mean, even if you think about in the first presidency, if you had women who didn't have to vote with their husband, but they were in the first presidency and they could have their silent vote, you know, how much they would go. That is ridiculous. You know, you know, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, I have a very funny story of way back when I was an undergrad at BYU and you're both way too young, but maybe historically you know that Joseph Fielding Smith was married to this. She was like his second wife, I think, uh, Jesse Evans Smith, and she was this um, this really strong woman. And there was a devotional where he gave a talk, and he had all these strong things that he said. And she got up, and I'm I maybe I'm remembering wrong that this was a private one, but. She basically, you know, he had all these strict rules about how you should dress and this and that. And after he gave his talk, she gave a talk and she goes, oh, we girls, we know that. uh, She basically contradicted him everything he said and said, well, that's a man's perspective. But we Uh, girls know that we need this and that. You know, we need our makeup. We need this. We need we have things, you know, don't believe all those kind of strict rules from the old patriarch. I couldn't believe that she said that in a public meeting. (laughs) but <laughs> I wonder what happened you know, when they went home. I can only imagine.
2: <laughs> I, I, I don't, I
1: think why. he was afraid of her, quite frankly.
0: Good, good. Oh my <laughs> she, gosh. she
1: was also, she was a singer and she would always, you know, sing whenever they were invited to come pl- someplace. And my husband likes to uh, laugh that she was like the only female baritone in the church. She had this really deep <laughs> voice, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's a kind of a little, uh, this memory, but you think about, if the women really had a voice you know and they didn't have to feel like they had to sustain their husbands you know how would certain policies be different mm-hmm. um I, I i don't know if you guys ever talked about some of the controversy over garments for women yeah that whole thing where the women were complaining that the garments were not good for their physical health mm-hmm. they were getting infections mm-hmm. And of course, I, I my immediate response was, yeah, there's some kind of it's really about money. The church made some deal with some, you know, fabric company yeah. and they in made China. them and they're yeah, they're not going to they're not going to go back about, you know, who cares about women's health until you make it public and then church is embarrassed. Right. But if you think about, you know, if women had been in charge where they're the ones who are saying, yeah, we wear them and they're really uncomfortable and there's a problem here but you have some decision made above
0: that women's voices are not really heard. And no, it's, it's a travesty to me. And I had this conversation with um someone about the Salt Lake temple and what they've done to that, which is just destroy it completely. Oh, I know. And I'm somebody so upset said, about it. <laughs> Yo, everyone's extremely upset. And this person is a, a archivist and a preservationist and is really into architecture. And he said, If there were any women's voices, any women's voices in any of that decision-making, which was, I believe, just a corporate, you know, right down the line, no consideration to the arts or the beauty or the history or the meaning, any women's voices in there, they would have said, slow down, slow down. You don't understand what this means and what this is. There's a yang and a yang, there is. And they, the the men in the church have siloed themselves to such an extent that, that they're missing, they're missing an entire half of everything that could give such great input and come out with solutions and workable answers, but they just don't. They they completely turn it off. And you see things like that, the garments, you see things like destroying artwork and architecture. And you just think, where are the voices that are protecting those? And, and even, even in the First Presidency and the Apostles, artists or poets or you know anybody that would see another perspective, you just need that.
1: Right. And I mean, I think that in addition to what you're saying, which I totally agree, that women's perspectives are not at all valued. But even if you think about the fact that the leaders clone themselves, yeah. mm-hmm. so you know when they choose yeah. new they leaders, they're not going to choose the leader who uh, is the artist, mm-hmm. the humanities kind of guy. Mm-hmm. They're going to choose someone who's a successful businessman, yeah. right? Yeah. So that they're not, you know, they're 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 not even using the best talents of the yeah. men. Right. Because they have a model of what leadership should look like. And it's very corporate. And, you know, so you can just look and see. I mean, I think about my own father. He was um, he was such a good man, but not at all. You know, he was not the successful businessman. He was a very gentle sort of soul. He never had a priesthood leadership position, but he was the most faithful person. He was always there you know, putting up the chairs, taking down the chairs, you know, doing the service, but he would not be called because mm-hmm. he was not this, you know, alpha successful yeah. businessman. And so it's, it's so sad on so many levels, you know, that, you know, what is valued because of not just the male priesthood structure, but the corporate structure mm-hmm. of the church that thinks more about money as though they need more money, right? Right.
0: Oh, um, my gosh! Yeah,
1: it's like, can't we preserve the art? Can't yeah. we preserve the history? Of course, I think they want to whitewash and destroy the history. We don't yes, want to there's see. There's an ulterior motive, <laughs> right? But it's really sad, you know, that we have this overall. And I mean, it's so it, it's it's so I'm mean, to use the word sad again, but it's so sad that they've made this big issue out of something. That shouldn't be a big issue of women sitting on the stand. You know, who was threatened by that? There must have been somebody who said, oh, that looks too much like women have priesthood authority. They have authority, right? We can't can't have the women be this visible sign of authority. So we better remove them off the stand. I mean, if you think about, I'm thinking of my youth growing up too. I mean, it used to be that, yeah, you'd have the bishopric sitting up there, but you'd also have everybody who was going to give a talk, Mm-hmm. And you'd have the the chorus or the organist. I mean, yeah, there was the sort of priesthood male right there at the front. But yeah, it, it it's like why can't they, why can't they even let women have a little bit of authority? Why do they have to take
0: even a little bit that they've given away, uh, given in the past? Now they're going to take it away. So and that's the I, issue, I, and it's going to end up being bigger than they think. I think already they're really surprised at how <laughs> going back to the corporate land and remember this we will laugh in florida we connected with some missionaries that were down there they went out to dinner with us actually and we asked them so tell us about your mission president and they said he's a hedge fund manager from salt lake he's worth 3.1 billion dollars and he you know and they were just thrilled over him that was his credential and these boys were just in awe and you know the business is just corporate like that. But we also attended a Bickertonite service. If you're familiar with the Bickertonites yeah. that kind of come down through Sydney Brigdon. And right. it was interesting to us because they, you know, we thought, well, this is an interesting example because, you know, it's early church. It kind of has roots back there. So they did have a very large male presence on the stand. They let women come up and dress the sacrament table. Mm-hmm. They were able to put the you know, the sheet on or the tablecloth and they were able to prepare that Then they sat back down and then the rest of it was very male. So, you know, I would think that most branches of the restoration, I think maybe Community of Christ has made some strides in that way. They do have ordained apostles and and leaders, but, you know, it's a restoration. It's a hallmark of the restoration, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, the Community of... We've recently been reading uh, some of Sidney Rigdon's uh, Mm -hmm. when he left the church and he actually made Phoebe a prophetess, in, a prophetess, uh, yeah. the 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 one that he ended up uh, running. So uh, the there is, of Zion. Yeah, there is some uh, indication that uh, the, the early leaders were supportive of women having these type of leadership positions. So.
1: Yeah, I I think it's really interesting that example Rebecca of the women could kind of dress the temple, <laughs> the sacrament table, <laughs> make it all nice. There's. Yeah, there's this constant thing about, you know, what what can women do that doesn't encroach upon priesthood authority? Because, again, I think that's the central issue. They're worried about women and, you know, somehow taking away from the male priesthood. It seems like this goes back to some real fear about women's power. Mm -hmm. I remember way back in the year I was, when... The September 6, 1993, where we had the purge of intellectual scholars and feminists, where um, I was the one that was first threatened even before my husband. And I was called in by the bishop. I was called in by the state president. And I remember the bishop saying to me, and he was actually a really lovely man. I liked him. He, he did not actually hold a church court on me, which was one of the reasons that they waited for a while before I was exed. He didn't want to do that. He was, I thought he was a compassionate, good man. But he said to me, after he read one of my articles about women in priesthood, he said, I don't know. I'm just afraid that if women had priesthood, they would completely dominate the men. Women are so strong and they're so good at what they do. And men, you know, they need priesthood because, you know, otherwise they'll just be out (laughs) doing, you know, who knows what. But he he just felt clubs, like that, bars, oh, we can't have... Ha- yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll be off in the bar. I was thinking that they're going to be off playing sports, right? <laughs> they'll be doing basketball in the in the, in the the cultural hall. Um, he was just... And it was interesting to see from even him, who I thought was very open and not a authoritarian type of person. Um, and in fact, he was like um, an architectural historian or something. He was not like the business person right. at all. But he was just afraid of women dominating. And um, and it's interesting. He was raised by a single mom whom he really admired. And she was evidently, she was very strong. <laughs> but he <laughs> thought, yeah, we have to worry because we men, we're just going to be outpowered by the women. <laughs> <Yeah. Yep. laughs>
2: so you I don't have to know. be cobbled. <laughs> I'll say one of the great blessings of post-Mormondom is that I've got to meet so many brilliant women who... Had no, I I didn't meet brilliant women in the church because they're not allowed to speak. But uh, uh, these they were there because obviously you two are a perfect example of that. And and as I've met so many women that are just brilliant, I'm just going, oh my gosh, we we really messed up there by not including uh, that that brain trust because there really are some bright women out there. Uh, and and when you compare the compassion that most women have and throw that on with the brilliance, you just go, wow, that's that's next level uh, t- <laughs> in teaching people on what you want, a Christ-like attitude, you know, mm-hmm. so.
1: Well, and I, I just think we have so much to share with each other. The idea that we're going to separate everybody, we have the male priesthood, and then the women kind of do their things. It really, it it creates a dysfunction on every single level. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Rebecca, about you know, the letter that these women sent to leaders, um, that I think really the sad thing too, is that girls do not have the, they do not see role models, right? They do not see women in positions of authority. They don't see women, you know, scholars, teachers, they don't see this in the church. And, you know, the younger women are not putting up with this. There are more and more young women who just leave. I mean, it's like, There's nothing for me here, you know, in the workplace, I am valued for my skills and my intelligence, but in church, you know, I can hand out towels, right? And, and they, they, girls see it. It's not like they don't see it. I mean, I love that story again, of yours, Rebecca, about they were fierce. Yeah, I want priesthood.
0: Little girls were fierce. I'm telling you, everybody needs to watch out. They're not going to put up with that. So No. And
1: and again, the church is losing so much because they are losing young women. You know, the young women, they see it very clearly that there's a big division between what happens in the regular world versus what happens in the church.
0: Exactly. And I saw that with, I believe, the parents of these little girls at home were telling them they could do anything a boy could do. They could do the sky is the limit. And yet they couldn't bring themselves to say, but not in this organization. And I think when you say the women, the women are so more important than anyone realizes because the church kind of uses them as the gateway to the boys, if that makes sense, to draw them in, to keep them in. I mean, in my own family, I have, you know, a son that was not really considering a mission and then, you know, connected with a girlfriend and her family. and, And I really see that. And I think the church sees that too, as a gateway to control, influence um, the boys. I I don't know if you guys have noticed something like that, but I noticed that a lot, that the women are pretty much taught. This is what you should expect of your partner. And so you're going to keep them in line and you're going to keep them in. So they they should give more, I don't know, credence to that. I don't know. I wonder, I know in our discussion with BYP, you talked a little bit about the early church and what you kind of described (laughs) to us is more power i mean more authority which has basically been wrung out of it at this point but i think maybe our viewers and listeners might be interested in knowing a little bit about that just right and um so to me there
1: are again we discussed this before in my article that was a critique of the church essay um as i did my historical research and this is what got me in trouble initially was that I looked at the speeches of Joseph Smith to the Female Relief Society in Nauvoo, where he's promising them, he's saying, I'm turning this priesthood key over to you. You are going to have, I'm going to give you, I'm going to introduce you into the priesthood using very priesthood language. And of course, the church essay tries to deny that any of that really was about priesthood. They said, no, Joseph Smith just, he didn't teach anything that wasn't exactly what we do today, that he was just using language, you know, loosely. He talked about the Relief Society being organized in the structure of the priesthood. And then importantly, he also organized, um, well, he saw the temple endowment as bestowing priesthood upon women, which I think that if you look at it, There is so much priesthood language. And again, they try to say, oh, that has nothing to do with ecclesiastical priesthood or real priesthood. It's only about temple ceilings. And but he also organized in almost the last year of his life, he organized a group called the Anointed Quorum, the Holy Order, where both men and women met together. And it was called a priesthood quorum. And it didn't last very long. Um, And there's no evidence. We don't have the minutes to see. I don't think women ever said anything in the meeting. So it's not as though everything was changed. But from my perspective, the thing that's important about it is that historically and theologically, you can use the and there are many more statements of Joseph Smith that I quoted my article. The article is in a book called um, Scholars Respond. To the LDS gospel topics essays. And I have everything documented in there. So, I mean, you can't say that it was just like it changed everything, but I think it it laid a theological and historical precedence for women being part of the priesthood structure. Then I also, in this article, go on to talk about how the women who were there at the foundation of the relief society and who Uh, were endowed and part of the holy order that women like Bathsheba Smith and um, Sarah Melissa Granger and others, uh, Eliza Snow, they saw themselves as priestesses and they saw, they knew that Joseph Smith had promised them something. And they felt that the Relief Society was the place where they were going to exercise these gifts. Well, you have a series of movements by the leaders where they redefined everything and um, went backwards about any of those promises that Joseph Smith had made to the Relief Society. And by the time you get to like 1920, everything had changed. And interestingly though, the Relief Society still had this independent power basically until correlation in the 1970s. They did have their own money They had their own magazine, but then that was taken away and you've sort of had, you know, more and more power was taken away. But then I think it's very fascinating if I look at the whole history, starting in basically I think around the time of the ordained women movement, the church makes changes that seem to give women more again saying that women can, they say you can have authority and power of the priest, but you don't have keys or offices. The They say you could be witnesses. Uh, and even the changes in the temple, I think it's very fascinating that they took away the idea that women had to be obedient to the husband. I'm glad they did that. Yes, But really, if you look at their other changes, it's still, even like the marriage ceremony was changed a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't have the exact language, But the way they changed that, though, it was a little bit more equal, like an equal partnership. But you still have the man presiding. And so they've kind of thrown out these things to say, oh, we believe in these equal partnerships. But really, it's, again, men presiding. And because men have the priesthood. And that's why I always say the bottom line is, that as long as women don't have priesthood, they're always second class citizens. So I guess... You know, you can argue that in the history of the church, again, we have a theological and historical precedence for saying, you know, for disagreeing with somebody like Gordon Hinckley, who said, you know, God has all always, at all times, only given priesthood to men. Mm-hmm. And this is the eternal pattern. It's God's will. We're not going to change that. Priesthood only belongs to men and i'm saying well whatever else you can say negative about joseph smith there is this historical evidence that he had a very different view about women uh being women having priesthood and being part of a structure but it was it was only a very beginning because not long after that of course he was killed and brigham young quickly tried to walk back on all of that <laughs> of course and you know there was i would say there was kind of a fight between and I talk about this in my article, a fight between those women who, you know, Bathsheba Smith said, Joseph Smith gave us everything. He gave us all this, you know, he made us priestesses, he gave us all of this stuff. The Relief Society is supposed to be this priesthood organization for women and then the men make them back down on everything and by 1920 it has changed. But um, I think it's still the issue. And I'm you know, I've always got I that was the thing that got me in trouble. I mean, Boyd Packer was the one who um, told my state president to hold a court on me. My husband, too. This was in 93. Um, I sometimes joke that maybe nobody else really understood what I said in Strangers in Paradox, but I think Boyd Packer understood it perfectly well. He I think he knew that, you know, that there was a foundation there for changing the position of women in the church and i needed to be out my leaders were told that you know you need to well the finally the 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 high council court by the way i was i w- it was a high council court who tried me and excommunicated me and they said to me directly we need to excommunicate you so that nobody will believe you and uh <laughs> So in fact it's interesting that I was excommunicated on November 30th 2000. So 23 years ago just barely celebrated that. But but so <laughs> no, I mean I'm celebrate not claiming, that. <laughs> so I'm not claiming that you know that that it was perfect in Joseph Smith's day. No. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he made there's so many statements which I document in my article and so many things that were done that set a theological and historical precedence for a different structure of the church. And that immediately every the, the male leaders after his death wanted to, you know, deny all of that. And they've on and on, you know. So the latest is this gospel topics essay where they say, Well, yeah, if you look at the the lectures of Joseph Smith to the Relief Society, it sounds like he's promising them priesthood, but really, it's not really that's he's just using language lightly and. You know, yeah. he believed exactly what we believe now. So I don't know if that helps Rebecca, but that's, no, kind that's, of the... that's,
0: that's wonderful. I love that overview. And, and you're exactly right. There's a path there. If somebody wanted to explore that, there is a path doctrinally um, to make this happen. But Boyd K. Packer, he's showing well, showing all of us you don't you don't go yeah. down that path and you slap down everybody that even brings that path up. So, and I think I see I see women, you know, having obviously been a woman in the church, I I see them having to just I don't know learn to do workarounds and kind of conjole and trick, you know, like oh we've got this budget for primary, okay, I'll go into the bishop. I he's he's in a bad mood after sacrament meeting, but later I'll go in and I'll see if we can get this through. I think that plays into the primary voice. I think it plays into the whole keep sweet where you're just, you know that you're a second class citizen and you know that to even get anything done, you have to play this role. And it's just so, it's just so sad. And I think, have you heard of, um have you heard of Faith Matters Restore? It's kind of a, how would you describe it, Landon? It's, it's sort of a group, a growing group of kind of progressive Mormons who have a lot of Really awesome ideas about equality and things like that. They meet, they have um, groups and symposiums and things like that. And then, of course, they're still part of their normal wards and, and branches, uh, but they have these ideas of equality and there's a chance and someday it's going to change. I mean, is that kind of part of the cycle that you've seen? You have these things happen and then maybe they make a push and then they're kind of pushed back down. Is it cyclical? Will it just keep going? I, I mean, that's kind of what I've seen from what you're describing. Right.
1: No, I, Rebecca. Excuse me, I've heard a little bit about that
0: mm-hmm. group.
1: And I think it's exactly the pattern I've talked about, mm-hmm. that when you look at younger people, you know, and I, I really think that part of the problem is the leadership is these old men who don't want changes. Yeah. And, you know, if you had actually younger men, even mm-hmm. let's say younger, 50 and younger. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Define young. Yeah, 65. Well, I mean, maybe. Yeah. <laughs>
1: 50 or younger, I think that they would be more open to changes. Yeah. And for me, that's the hope that if we can just get some of these old guys to die, um, <laughs> <I> should, <laughs> we can pray for that. <laughs> but I don't know. The problem is that even the younger leaders, again, they clone themselves. So yes. they pick new leaders that they you aren't chosen as a mission president unless you're a successful business person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not chosen to be one of the new you know, leaders unless you're going to follow the pattern that they want you to follow. But I think I actually have hope that eventually there'll be some changes, that you have enough younger people, progressive Mormons. There are more of them than you think. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, I've seen the cycles over and over again. And I think there are younger people who do want to see changes. They don't like the church being the way it is. They don't like the misogyny. I mean, the, the upper leaders are misogynistic. They don't like the misogyny. They don't like the racism. They don't like the homophobia. They don't like all these policies against LGBTQ people. You're seeing this happening at BYU, obviously. Yeah. The church has come down hard on we want BYU to be orthodox. But you have professors who do not agree with this and they have to be silent now. But I think things will change. I am hopeful because I just think that there are a lot of younger people, people that I talk to who do not agree with this. And they, I mean, even if you think about believers, this doesn't go along with their view of a compassionate, good God. Mm -hmm. They can't, you know, it's hard to believe that God, you know, that God goes along with this. Like, it's funny, I published an article clear back in 2004 that was called, Are Boys More Important Than Girls? And this came from, it was an example from my sister's ward, where, um, it's funny, the woman gave a talk about this. My son asked me when he he saw all the priesthood, you know, does Heavenly Father like boys more than girls? because only the boys get the priesthood? So this is a little boy asking this, and this is back in 2004. And the mother was trying to say, well, no, honey, you know, God really does love us all. And she did this at a testimony meeting as though her answer to the son was (laughs) faith-promoting rather than seeing it as kind of appalling, right? A little boy can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Boys must be more important than girls because the boys hold the priesthood. They do the sacrament, all of this. But I think that that people see it and, you know, it's like, you know does god love you know why does god only want a man to be the prophet right don't women have prophetic voices don't they have important things to say so i'm hopeful that things will change but unfortunately rebecca i think that we'll have more waves of putting things down yeah. like we this and that's why for me this example of the you know stand down you know stand down from the from the pulpit right yeah that It's a sign of that cycle. But I think eventually people will just get tired of it. I mean, if you think about the two big voices that have that I've seen as trying to promote this, this false idea of equality is Dallin Oaks and Mm -hmm. President Nelson. Yep. You know, they're the two big voices of, you know, oh, yeah, things are great. There are a couple Mm -hmm. of talks and another thing I wrote. I quoted one from um, from Nelson where you know, he's acting as though there's all this equality at the same time that it was in the session where he said, let's have the men all stand up according to their priesthood office. Yeah. And they went like, kind of like you do in a in a solemn assembly. <laughs> it was like, really? You're trying to claim that women have sort of a equal partnership, but you're honoring all the men with priesthood at the same time? So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But unfortunately, it seems like it's just going to happen really slowly. And yeah, Well,
0: like who's a Holland that said the church is always 20 years behind and they are. But eventually the gap is so huge that you have to take notice because you look like a freaky fundamentalist cult. If you don't, you know what I mean? It's yeah, and and actually, difference.
1: yeah, they don't want that. I mean, I remember yeah. way back with um, with Gordon B. Hinckley. I think it was in his interview with Mike Wallace where he made this great st- statement where he goes, we are not weird
0: you know and <laughs> tell yourself that
1: <laughs> tell yourself that, and that actually i think he was one of the better presidents yeah. and you know, he was kind of pragmatic and so forth but i don't think the church we they don't want to look like weird fundamentalists they don't want to be weird eccentric they want to be mainstream american and even mainstream Christian, although I think there's yeah. a real problem there with trying to they have yeah. they have given too much into the evangelicals, yeah.
2: But and, and yet they're yeah. One, so go ahead, Len. They're one of the institutions that will always take a step backwards when everyone else is stepping forward, and this is an, a perfect <laughs> example of that. When you think they're maybe going the right direction, they take a step backwards <laughs> and say, "Nope, we're not going where you thought we were going," uh, mm-hmm. and and everyone just goes. What and and I think they hurt themselves when they do that, and I think this is a perfect example of that. Yeah,
1: it, it really is. And like I said in 2019, it seemed like they were moving in a direction we're gonna change language in the temple, Mo- women can be witnesses, we're kind of moving toward what could be more of an equal partnership, and then suddenly they do this. Yeah, and in a sneaky way, that's yeah. the part that's also disturbing, yeah. is that it's sneaky and they they. Leave themselves room to deny that they really even did that, yep. so that maybe they could change later yeah. if they need.
2: To. Which tells you they know it's stupid.
1: They know that's right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they do know it's stupid, and um, yeah, I mean, I just think that because of the of the soul hierarchy of the church, I mean, it's like the way in which Nelson made this crazy thing about making the word Mormon yeah. uh, like it's an evil word. Mm -hmm. That makes me so upset on so many levels, but because of he's in the position he is, even though people know that it's stupid Mm -hmm. or even to try to say, we've got to say the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints (laughs) instead of LDS. I mean, nobody's going to say that long name, right? It's stupid, but nobody can contradict him. I mean, it's like the, the, the emperor, you know, the, the emperor going naked, right? That's right. There, no one's going to say, President Nelson you that's a really stupid idea.
0: Yeah. No but they have <laughs> to do it, it and now now they've I was going to say, now they've set in place that the words of prophets, once they pass away, are kind of null and void. You don't pay attention, right? They don't age well, like classic cars and comic books, which means that as soon as the next prophet is in, he could say, well, that was, now we'll do this. That just leaves people in the wind. And that's maybe a funnier or a lighter example. But then you have something like the November 15th policy, right? People inherently did not, you know, they knew that was horrific, yet, my prophet said, I have to do it, you know? Oh, it's repealed. Okay. Now I, you know, it just leaves people in this giant hot mess, this muddle, you know, nobody's really doing what their conscience is telling them. But I really liked what you kept reminding us of before, um, an hour ago, <laughs> where you talked about the men that are champions here. I think that would be a good thing to, to talk about as, as we kind of conclude, because I agree the women are progressing, the women are seeing it, but the men are seeing it too. And these boys agree, totally. are raised by women and they're going to be a huge part of it too. You know, a lot of people that I noticed that we talked to with the standoff, they were men saying, I don't agree with this. I don't like this. How dare you do this? So what role do you see men playing in this? As we go forward, hopefully change. Yeah. And I
1: think it's really important for men who are in leadership positions to, even if they do it in subtle ways, so they don't seem to be, you know, defying the leadership, yeah. but they in subtle ways reinstate women's power and consult women and raise up women. If men are willing to do that, I think it makes a huge difference. And that and and i agree with you i just think there's so many men mm-hmm. who um who really do not like this kind of authoritarian um and you know they don't agree with the second class citizenship of women and they want changes so people have to i know you can't be as bold as i have been in the past or even mm-hmm. now but if you can think of more subtle ways of empowering women and trying to create on a local level, more of an atmosphere of inclusion, I think it makes a huge difference. And
2: that's exactly what they just did here. And they got slapped uh, down. And that's why the men need to stand up at this point.
1: Hey,
2: you didn't give me a written policy. There is no written policy. So if you're going to say I get to make the letter, I'm going to write the letter the way I feel (laughs) because you (laughs) gave me no direction. (laughs) I love that Landon. I agree. Have a
1: a bishop say, okay, it's up to me. Or a state president say, it's up to me. I'm going to do, I think it's fine for women to be on the stand because I want there to be role models for all of our young women. I want our young women to know that we value women equally with men and that we don't see men as somehow they're always in charge and they're always right. They don't have to be that bold in saying that, but just to say that we need models for our young women so that they know that we value women in the church. Mm-hmm. You're right, Landon, there is room here. And, and the very fact, and it's so ironic, because they don't wanna take responsibility and they won't say that they don't like it, they have given some leeway to local leaders. And I think men should stand up, stand up for the women. And you know, it's really interesting because I've spoken so much on women being ordained and women having priesthood. Over the years, I've often had more men that agree with me than women. And because I think women are sometimes afraid um, that if they say, I think women should be ordained, that they think that they're seen as power hungry. And so they will not, they will not say it boldly, but if a man says it, you know, he he's not seen as being, you know, outrageous or power hungry, if he says, yeah, I think women should be ordained. So I think men can have a very important role in promoting more actual equality in the church, rather than just this kind of surface thing, too, that there's a lot they can do. And I think it's really important. And I think men will, you know, I I hope that they will do it.
2: I've seen too many men just shed that responsibility and say, well, that's what my leader told me. If you're a leader in the church and you're a leader whose responsibility it is, is to take a moral stand when you see something wrong, then for heaven's sakes, take a moral stand. You don't just bend over. You may get kicked out. That's fine. You took (laughs) the stand. That's what you're supposed to do when you're a religious moral leader. And that's what you've been called to do. So do it. Stand up to Mm -hmm. it. And and that's what I'm not saying. If you're going to make the women stand down, it's time for you to stand up. So, I love that. So, I, I totally a agree.
0: That's awesome, Landon. That's a great
2: slogan. We need it to is. make a meme,
0: right?
1: Know. <laughs> Get your husband on this, Rebecca. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, this is this is really important. In fact, I would say that even if we're not talking uh, women's issues, to me, this is a central problem in the church. People act against their own moral conscience. Mm-hmm. Because they are told that the more important thing is that they're obedient to leaders. And yet they know in their hearts there. so many times on lots of different issues, certainly with a lot of the LGBTQ and especially yeah. how children are treated, those it was so obvious to people that there was something morally wrong about what was being done. But because you're told... Um, you know, obedience is the first law of heaven. And I go, yeah, obedience to God and your conscience, not to leaders. That's right. It. And it's, and yet I think that the most important thing, we're going to be judged on our own actions mm-hmm. and what we do. Not that I believe in a judgmental God. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just if you're thinking about in this idea in general, you know, it's your own conscience, it's your own actions. The idea that you're just going to defer to somebody else that it that's destructive that's how you have you know major if you think about you know nazi germany and it was different there because there were consequences you could be beheaded or you know put into the where into the concentration camps if you disagreed that's not the consequences we have so the fact that people are not correct more courageous is disturbing to me because I mean, yeah, they can excommunicate you <laughs> as they did to me because they told me, they said, you can believe whatever you want. You just can't say any of this stuff in public, right? But I go, no, if I can't speak my conscience in public, then there's something very wrong. That is the, to me, that's the most central thing is that a person has to act according to her conscience. And his conscience and their consciences and so forth, you know, because that is the basis of
0: moral action. Like you said, Landon, I really like what you said. Yeah, it was great. We're going to make a bumper sticker. but And, you know, I think that it does, it can make a difference. I think of um, protecting children in the LDS church. I think of somebody like a Sam Young, a bishop that said, no, this is not going to happen. I personally have a relative that was a bishop that said, I am not going to interview youth like that anymore. I mean, people are standing up saying, this is not right. I'm going to have my door open. I'm going, you know, you see these things, you can make a change. I mean, it may be a personal risk. You could get disciplined. There could be a problem, but if you feel it, you need to do it. And enough do, then changes happen as we saw with, you know, little bit of, you know, little bit of moving the needle on child protection. So I think it makes a difference, you know, and I think women sometimes we feel like, you know, Oh, the patriarchy, we don't need them to give us power in the church. We all have to work together. We just have to, it's the system that there is, you know, so you just, you have to, you have to come around to it together. I think. Yeah, I
1: totally agree. Very important for people to take individual responsibility. Because that the individual action or speaking out, you know, in some meeting or something where, you know, things are moving in a direction that makes you uncomfortable. It's hard, but I think it makes a difference. I used to have that happen to me where I'd speak out in some, you know, church meeting and Relief Society or Sunday school. And afterwards, I'd have people come up to me in the hall. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad, (laughs) you know, they're afraid to. Right. But if somebody will speak out, I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Or even a little difference, but a lot of little differences make a a
0: big difference in the long run. That's it. And I think that's how you have to navigate the structure of the church. That's just how it's set up. But you can historically look at big changes that happen from little steps from people. So, wow, this has just been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could keep talking for hours. (laughs) It's been awesome. Landon, do you have any final thoughts on this? I just, this has been really, really impactful for me.
2: I I just don't see the gender thing being, uh, why it should be an issue, because Margaret Toscano's got bigger balls than all the rest of the leaders in the church. <laughs> so, wow.
0: Okay, that's a bumper sticker to too, maybe. Stand
2: up and say what needs to be said. Yeah, no, that's conscience. exactly it. So, uh, good for yep. you, Margaret.
0: And that's why we're so honored to have you on. That was just a wonderful. Well, I just I want... love
1: talking. Oh, I so love fun. talking to you guys. It's yeah. been both times. It's been really yeah. fun. And I, I love the kind of interaction and so forth. So thank you for having me on.
0: Oh,, we're so happy. and and we're we're going to have you back again. There are these issues that you're always the perfect person to to discuss with. But we want to remind everybody that Margaret and her husband Paul are going to be on Mormonism live because this will air Monday. so you'll all be watching it Monday. And then Wednesday at six twenty p m. Mountain time. This is going to be fantastic. I've talked to RFM about this, and he is, beyond thrilled to have you guys on. He said, these are my people. This this is going to be just wonderful. So (laughs) it's going to be a really great episode of Mormonism. Here I am promoting another show on my show, but I don't care because (laughs) we're all in the same boat together. It's awesome. So all right. Well, thank you, everybody. And please comment. Let us know what you think about the taking a stand on, stand off, all of that. Have you experienced any of the things that we've talked about in your own wards? Um, Just please comment and and let us know about what you thought of Margaret's thoughts and, and just everything we talked about. And of course, like and subscribe to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be made aware of when our new episodes come out, you can hit the notification bell and it'll let you know when the new ones um, drop. And if you'd like to financially support Mormonish, we have links in the show notes um, to PayPal or to Venmo if you'd like to help us um, financially. And again, just uh, thank you so much, everybody. And happy holidays, too, to everyone if if we don't talk again before the end of the year. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for Mormonish. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.